Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening today. Before we join the podcast, we'd like to let you know that Understanding Ag will be hosting a Soil Health Academy on Monty's Farm this summer in Cambridge, Illinois, August 1st through the 3rd. This workshop will focus on implementing regenerative principles in a corn-soy rotation. What a great opportunity to see these concepts in action on the farm with instructors Gabe Brown, Shane New, Luke Jones, and Brian Doherty. Don't miss the powerhouse conversations guaranteed to take place. Head on over to the Soil Health Academy website at www.soilhealthacademy.org and click on the Education tab to see the Soil Health Academy upcoming workshops. And now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Eric Fuchs, a consultant for Understanding Ag. Eric's work and experience make for a great conversation. He lives in southeast Missouri on a diversified livestock operation where they raise hair sheep and contract graze cattle. He's been using holistic planned grazing for over eight years and has managed grazing systems on his operation for more than 20 years. In addition to that, Eric also works in the water and wastewater industry as a source water protection technician. He works with small and large communities and with agricultural producers to help ensure community water protection. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's jump right in. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm uh, great to be joined today by Eric Fuchs. Eric, welcome. How are you doing today? I am good, Money, and I really appreciate this opportunity. I've been looking forward to this all week. Well, Eric, uh, tell us your story for the listeners, just kind of uh, uh, who you are, where you're from, and, and how you the journey that you've been on and what's gotten you to where you are today. I appreciate that. It's, it's actually quite interesting. So I'm from a little town in Southeast Missouri, uh, and that is not the boot hill. You have to tell everybody I'm not part of the boot hill. That's I Arkansas. Was, I was going to ask you that. <laughs> I'm You're up an in uplander. The o- <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm in the Ozarks about two and a half hours South of St. Louis and had an interesting path. So uh, went to the university of Missouri quite a few moons ago and did the typical get an agronomy degree and you always want to be in agriculture. My dad had been a part-time farmer whole life and delivered mail on the side, but always knew I wanted to do something in ag and did not enjoy college. But my senior year in college, I took an interesting class called topics in agronomy with a gentleman named Jim Garish and <laughs> Jim was, yes. Yeah. And uh, really opened up my whole world on that. There's something different out there. So, um, it came back to the farm, started a grazing system, ended up having a little hiatus, uh, went into the Air Force for five years and traveled a little bit and came back. And Missouri has been really uh, bored, you know, on, on money and cost shares. So we had a grazing system for about 25 years, kind of got into that, went down the road a little further and uh, got trained in the holistic management, went down and, and uh, out to New Mexico and did two weeks with Kirk Gadzia. He used to be a trainer and kind of made it up to the next step of, of uh, high density grazing, you know, that was going to be the new thing. And, and I kind of got involved with Dr. Alan Williams a little bit and heard about Gabe Brown and those guys. And, and then about eight years ago, I started, I guess it's been 10 years now, I started with a company called Missouri Rural Water Association. And uh, I was in source water protection. So I like to say I was the guy that protected the water before it became drinking water. And, um, so I got certified in, in treatment and distribution. And, and within, I joke, within about 10 minutes of that job, I'm like, holy cow, there's some problems out here with agriculture and drinking water. So I've been friends with Doug Peterson for a long time. And interesting enough, they were having soil health training and RCS soil health training at Dave Brandt's farm. And I begged Doug to let me go. And I met, I met Dave, which was just a wonderful man. And God bless his soul, and and uh, met Ray Archuleta, and that really opened up my world of the soil health thing. I'm like, you know, I've really found the silver bullet, as I say, and 
came back, you know, really implemented it in my job, got involved with National Rural Water Association lobbying efforts. And about two, yeah, I did a webinar for Gay Brown and those guys. And about two years ago, they approached me and said, hey, would you like to be a consultant for understanding ag and work for Gabe and company? And I'm like, holy cow. I mean, could you, could you pick a job more, you know, that you wanted to do? So, and, and to add a little caveat to that. So I've been married to my current, my wife for five years, who is a chiropractor and then does what's called nutrition response testing. And so I help her in the offices and it's really kind of brought in the, the, the health side of it to like, holy cow, people are really sick. And so You've got agriculture, you got drinking water, you got the health side, you got food. It, it, it has really just molded us. She's got trained in soil health. And then I've done a lot of stuff in her world. I've learned what she's doing. And the 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 soil health movement, the regenerative ag movement for me actually seems like to be the uh, the golden egg, the perfect fit, something we need to do to change this world, make it a better place. So I know that's kind of out there and kind of airy fairy, but it's really shaped and formed you know, where I've started down the road. Well, that's, that's great. I appreciate you sharing that. So tell me a little bit about your, um, your farming operation that you've got going on there. Yeah. So we've got about 500 acres in the hills of Southeast Missouri along, uh, it's a river bottom along Black River, a lot of, a lot of that pretty Ozark woodland area and about, about half in grass. We've had a grazing system for, like I said, for about 25 years. We contract grazed about every type of cattle you can, which really opens you up on what type, how our cattle are in the world, you know. <laughs> uh, we've had sheep for years, uh, got a very intensive grazing, uh, you know, done everything from high density to con continued stocking. I say like made about all the mistakes we could that you can out there, kind of learned with it. So right now we've cut back quite a bit on animals because I travel so much, which in turn we had talked about some other things. I travel so much, it really makes it hard to manage like we want to manage kind of showed me some of the labor issues, trying to find somebody to help you, but really, really enjoy the livestock aspect of it. Have played around with row crops years ago as a family farm, but we haven't been involved in that quite some time, but still pretty direct, you know, directly involved with it with my job in that regards. Well, definitely a well-rounded background, and it's going to be pretty exciting to visit today about uh, those things. And I really want to focus on the on the water quality types of things too. So I think uh, that's important for farmers to know um, what we're doing there. And um, so first off, what what is a source of water? What does that mean? Let's let's get let's get maybe some definitions and, and some understanding, make sure we're all on the same page. Absolutely. So so the majority, I would say everybody around the United States receives their water from two sources. There's either groundwater or there's surface water. The vast majority, especially in a state like Missouri, uh, the vast majority get their water out of lakes or reservoirs or rivers. You know, the uh, Mississippi and uh, Missouri River, a lot of people, that's where they receive their water. You get out in other, and, other places. We're talking, in this case, we're talking drinking water. Drinking water. Yes. Everything I'm talking about is going to be drinking water. Yeah. Okay. And uh, then a lot of other places, you know, you get out West and some of those, they get it in groundwater and, and groundwaters for the most part, you know, you can say as uh, somewhat of a better source, you know, it takes less to clean up less things, but you know, you get in the surface water. And what I like to joke is, because I do have a little training in, in uh, wastewater as well, which is wastewater is what we get out the other end. And, uh, you know, everything we do as a farmer or we do as a, as a person, what, what we flush down our toilet, you know, I say all water becomes somebody's drinking water one time or another. So, you know, when I, when I worked around the country and see the different state of it, it's, I, I think we take for granted that we turn on a faucet and that water's clean, but there takes a lot of work and money and effort to make that clean and drinkable for people around us and around the world, really. Yeah. And it amazes me, uh, just as a fun aside here in the Quad Cities, uh, you know, Mississippi River is the major source for uh, the drinking water for the municipalities. But, you know, Moline has theirs upstream and their wastewater discharge on the, <laughs> on the city border downstream. And then Rock Island has their intake, you know, right on their border. 
and mm-hmm. wastewater downstream. Like, <laughs> you guys figured out you're 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 emitting where this one's intaking, and that's <laughs> anyway, that's, it. You know, that's just fun. <laughs> you know, the wastewater standards are supposed to be equal to or better than the than the river, but then again, in, in the Mississippi, that isn't hard to accomplish. But that's uh, very true. Yeah. Um, so these are the different water sources. Um, now, how does that? How does agriculture play into that? So we've got. We'll break it down into the two different areas of well water. We're kind of familiar with historic issues resulting from atrazine and alachlor uh, and Mm -hmm. those kind of things. And then on the surface water, we have other things in addition to chemistries, but uh, crop nutrients and and causing, you know, oxygen status, pH changes, algae, those kind of things. So uh, break it down into those, the groundwater and and the surface water. What, What are some of the things that municipalities and other people who are using this as a drinking water source dealing with? And, you know, to add a little bit to it, what I find with agriculture, it's it's a quantity and a quality issue, you know, because you get in many states, it's not only the quantity that is or the quality it's happening, but like you said, the quantity of, you know, see that in California a lot. But as I started this job and seen things, you know, I'm going to take make a pretty blanket statement here. I would tend to say about 95 to 98% of all issues in drinking water stem from agriculture use. And I've caught a lot of flack, you know, talk, talking about and stuff like that. But anything that comes off that farmer's field, whether it be a fertility issue or like you said, atrazine issue, does end up being somebody else's problem in drinking water. And in the regulatory world, we have what's called point and non-point pollution so you know you're familiar with that point i always say it's something i can see it's something i can look at like an industrial plant or a wastewater plant but a non-point pollution is everything else usually uh, an ag type field and the point type pollutions are very heavily regulated and for the most part because of those regulations and work they've done have done a very good job keeping their water clean but the non-point is very non-regulated i'm happy with that you know, but with that said, that is where most of the pollution ends up coming from. From a groundwater issue, we see you get out in Nebraska and Kansas, up in Wisconsin, Minnesota, nitrates. Nitrate are huge issues. For the most part, chemicals do not end up being too much of a problem in drinking water unless there's a direct spill, but the nitrate issues are huge. And, uh, you know, we have a 10 part per million. You get out in areas of Kansas that we work and we've tested you know, 30 irrigation wells and 28 of them will be well over 10 parts, a lot of them in 20 or 30 parts, even enough that we have them figure in fertility based off what their irrigation water is. You get into the surface water, you know, like the Mississippi, Missouri River, then then you start getting into your atrazines, you start, and, and you know, like glyphosate, for instance, it's not a regulated type chemical, but you get your, still your nitrogen, your phosphorus, your chemicals, the, the dead zone is is fertilizers. I mean, it's just, and, and, and we, we can get in some very touchy discussions on what's causing it. And I have my opinion. And, uh, you know, when you see what comes off some of these Iowa farm grounds, you see what's coming off Illinois farm grounds, you see the, the lack of effort in the nutrient reduction strategies. That's what we get, you know, for one more example, I remember in, in Missouri, there's a lot of places as corn ground would start to open up, as I would say, they would start up on their carbon levels and their treatment plants so they wouldn't go out of compliance of nitro- atrazine. So th- they managed around it and, and do a decent job with it. But the fact is that's money. You know, that is, uh, you know, that goes back to the Des Moines lawsuit and, and different things that we've seen over time. So just a lot of problems that are easily solved, easily handled if we just use the six principles of soil health. It really is. Right. Um and just as a side note, Gabe and I had a little discussion that there, there's five principles and then there's one law. It's the law of context. So uh, the verdict is still out with Gabe and I. He, he, he agreed on the podcast, but you know you don't want to change all the literature. You've got it all printed, so we'll just we'll just leave it that way. Anyway, plus, um, plus we know Gabe is always right. Uh, <laughs> just ask him. Uh, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, I'll tell him you said that. So <laughs> hey. Uh, so uh, let's talk about the point source emission thing, uh, mm-hmm. point source pollution. So why is uh, my tile dumping into an open water stream, not a point source? Yeah. Why is my draw 
waterway draw coming out of my field, not a point source. That is nothing more than lobbyists and regulations. I mean that oh, that you is know, that is one um that 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 is one regulation or law away from changing. That's it. I I, I have a really powerful slide I show in a presentation, and I show a outfall from a wastewater plant, and I show a, a tile outfall from a field, and I ask what is the difference between them. And of course, nobody can answer. And I said the only difference is regulations. And I would also venture to say that normally what's coming off that field is going to be more contaminated than what's coming off that wastewater plant. And, and, and that scares me from a, from a producer standpoint, because that, you know, we've got a strong lobby, we've got a lot of things that's saying, but, but the fact is there is no difference other than the regulatory side of it. And the reality is, is that's a, that's a battle that you can sustain, but not win. That's it. My, that's... In my opinion. I mean, we will spend the money lobbying efforts to, to keep that out of regulation as long as we can, but eventually, right, something something will come. It, it will come, and, and, and I will have to say something should come, and I, and right. I want it to come through changes of practices, you know, because right. the, regulator, the regulators know where the problems are. It is no secret, you know, that's, and that's why I believe we have waters of the U.S. We have a lot of these things that are trying to go that direction, and we all know that regulations, the unintended consequences of regulations are never what we want. They may be great intended, but the consequences of it are bad, so let's clean our act up now. And the fact is we've got the technology, we've got the cost share, we've got the ability, it's economically feasible and it's not that hard to do with existing, everything we've got. And that, that's, that's a struggle for me to when I look over and drive around the country, I'm like, we can do this now. And if we don't, we're gonna be made to do it and it's not gonna be pretty. That is, that's a great point. Now, let's back up the truck just a little bit because not everybody that's listening may know that uh, we're part of the problem um, mm -hmm. because we've been told we do great jobs. You know, um, farmers are wonderful. You know, we're, we're, we're doing our best. We're very conservation minded and those kind of things. Let's talk about what is happening with uh, uh, runoff because that's, that's a bigger issue. What are some of those things that are leaving our fields uh, based on the practices that we're doing today on, on row crop land? that's that's causing these problems you know from my standpoint when i look at the big three it's it's sediments nitrogen and phosphorus and we can go into some of the chemicals but but everything we do in regards to tillage or things is is, is in that top very small amount of the soil so where we're, we're when we lose anything at all whether it be blowing in the illinois you know wind or washing off in some of these round trains it's nitrogen phosphorus and sediments and it, it is really because of poor, like you said, poor farming practices. That is what creates dead zones. That is what creates water quality issues. And, uh, but, but that's the big three. And I always associate that with, because that's what we fight in the drinking water regulatory world, nitrogen, phosphorus, and cleanups of, of things like that. And it's important to know not all phosphorus is the same in this yes. regard. There's a, there's different forms of phosphorus and phosphorus nitrogen is fairly simple it's nitrate uh mm -hmm. nitrate's water soluble mm -hmm. uh, ammonium sticks to the clay until it becomes nitrate then it's water soluble so that one's pretty simple straightforward but phosphorus is a little bit different animal and ohio state did some work on this uh soluble reactive phosphorus is is the one that's the real booger right that uh, uh easily moves uh, water soluble in those things and I remember one time going up north to Winnipeg to the Soil Congress, World Soil Congress, and went out to do a, a field tour after the event. And they said one of the things they fight is with cover crops uh, when they're green and it, it freezes there and the ground's frozen. All of that phosphorus that's inside the plant is that soluble reactive phosphorus form. Mm -hmm. So when they get a rain and the ground still froze, it's just like an instant ejection a soluble or active phosphorus off of the ground. So, you know, here we are, cover crops are great, great, great. But in their instance, in their climate, it can potentially cause uh, additional phosphorus runoff. And, and, and I think, you know, that was, we were always taught probably as you were, that phosphorus is always attached to a soil particle. You know, it has everything to do with erosion. And then, like you said, now we're taught water, water soluble and, 
And my thoughts are with it, I think if we just stop the erosion or cut the erosion in half, everything else will kind of fall into place. Not, not that that's not a problem, but it's like such a out of my, you know, it's just Doug Peterson and I gave a presentation to Bill Stowe. I'm going off a little bit on the things, but from the Des Moines Waterworks. Mm -hmm. And we said, you know, if we just had a cover crop, a single species cover crop on, on the ground up here in Iowa, I don't care what it is. I don't care. It, it doesn't matter. We could solve 95% of the water quality issues. So like you said, it, it's, we've got those other things, but just keep, keep the soil in place would be huge, would be huge. Right. right. And then there, you know, the, the interesting part about that then is, is how does that happen? Right. So you're talking about, we can have the stick of regulations or there's some carrot efforts going on out there but what is you know what is a farmer's responsibility today it's typically elective right and, and just does it out of the right thing to do um versus what will that be tomorrow uh what what do you see happening there carrot stick wise on on water qualities issues you know we, we've got tons of carrots out there right now there anybody that wants to go down this path is is can do it but but you had mentioned something that's kind of hard to talk about but <clears throat> the the individual producer has been told that everything he's doing is right and and you know so i i can come in with more carrots and more carrots and more carrots but the education component of the fact why don't we first just admit there's a problem you know we, we we can stop trying to blame and it's urban or rural let's just say hey there is a problem let's don't do more research let's don't do more anything we we know it's there so let's try to try to tackle the problem but like you said the regulatory side of it will never be what we want i mean you can go up in chesapeake bay you can go in some of these areas and and some of the crazy stuff they've implemented you know on laws that are are quite radical, you know, for lack of a better term, never solved the problem. But I think the first thing is a lack of overall education. When I talk to producers, I say, I don't care what you do on your farm, but as soon as it leaves your farm, it becomes somebody else's problem. And until we understand that, think in that realm or, or know that, then we're never going to be able to solve the issue, but it does become somebody else's problem. Right. And I think that's important for us to recognize um, and always question everything as farmers that we're doing. Is this the best? Is there something I can be doing better? Not, not just be satisfied with, well, we're, we're doing what we can, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think we can always do things better. Um, and, you know, we, we have to look at systems that are more diverse, you know, longer season growing, um, you know, even what I'm doing today on our own farm, no-till cover crops and integrated livestock, it's, eh, it's okay. Uh, we're, we're still, we still have issues. I mean, far less than, than, than someone who's full on conventional tilling and, and no cover crops, but we're not, we're not perfect. We're not as good as what the natural system was in place prior to man doing what man's done. Right. Yeah. And, and you How know, do the we fact get closer? The, the, it's funny. The fact is, I think there's so much low hanging fruit. I, you know, when we start down the path as a consultant with some of these guys, I feel like just managing their existing nitrogen. I mean, I, I can take away, I can let them till. We, we don't have to talk about cover crops. I think just management of the nitrogen, you know, how about let's not apply nitrogen in the fall? You know, I mean, we, we are always one 80 degree day away you know, from what's going to happen. I've never really been able to get a good definitive oh, but answer. It's cheaper and I have time to do it. That, exactly. Exactly. And, and it's, I hear it all the time. And like I said, I never, I've never got a definitive answer that says, okay, how many days at 70 degrees, right? You know, I know we put the stabilizers on it and we do all that, but the fact is if we just managed around what we use now, and I can cut 25% straight across the board by split applications or putting it on when it's needed, using the 4R strategies, you know, before I even got down the road of no-till and cover crops, you know, so there's just so much low-hanging fruit. I mean, we, we have soil testing science that's, how old is it? You know, I mean, we, we, we can put uh, something on Mars, but I can't come up with a good soil testing procedure that says what I can do now and then, you know, it's, it's just a guessing game. So it's frustrating 
to see how much low hanging fruit is without even talking about the, the principles and, and covers and no-till and stuff that is out of some people's comfort zone. The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. So two big things you've mentioned right there, plant a cover crop, any cover crop, get rid of out of season application of nutrients, apply at planting or after those two things right there, water quality impact. If you could do that across the entire 300 million acres of farmland in the U.S., does that take away 75% of our issues? I'm confident of at least 75%. I mean, you know, when you drive around the country, you've done it just like me. You can't unsee things once you go down this road. And when you see the amount of bare ground, and I mean, if I can do two things, I can keep the ground covered and I can scavenge up those nutrients in a living root or a living plant. That's it. I mean, it really is that simple. That's what nature does. And like I said, we're not talking about a 28 species diverse mix. It's got to be crazy. I'm just talking and I don't... Even if we planted cereal rye in December or January and it got up an inch tall, it, it, it you know we've seen the impact of what just a little bit of effort will do in this regard. Yeah, if you can make, you know, uh, here's what I looked at is I, I remember when I'd fly to California, I'd, I'd fly out over our farm, you know, going from Moline to Chicago, and I'd look down and see our stuff, and it was kind of cool. And then you'd look out just on the vastness of everything, and it always hit me. It's like, I could do everything as perfect as possible on 2,000 acres, but it is a complete drop in the ocean. Um, but if I could help a million acres get 10% better, that's that's 50 times more impact than I could ever do uh, on on what I'm farming myself. So uh, I'm, I'm with you. If we could just everybody take the next right step, just just do the next right thing wherever you're at on your journey. So, you know, if you're listening to this, if, if you haven't, what are you going to do next year? What's the next thing you're going to do next year? Uh, now's when you're thinking about it, do it, get it done and, and just, just keep taking those steps forward. I think we get too comfortable doing what we've doing because we've always done it that way. And we know it works. No, no you don't know it works. You, you don't know what you're not doing, how it works. So, uh, and yeah. And we could go down the road of why things happen the way they are. That would probably be another four or five podcasts with farm programs and and the, the reason the landscape is like it is and what's planted on the landscape and why, you know. So, but, but there are reasons. I think I think if things were economically like they should be, we would see a lot more adoption of things we do. If the consumer was driving the train more, I think we would see a whole lot. You know, if the consumer, you know, I had a really great great quote, quote from an NRCS soil health specialist that was a farmer. And he said, Eric, when I go sell my corn down at the river, they never asked me what was the water quality like on my farm. So nothing is ever based off both quantity or what you're doing on your own place or the ecological impact of things that's happening. And I think we do have the responsibility to ask those questions. And if we can't do it ourselves and somebody else is going to start asking them and saying, we expect more from you. We want more for you. We're willing to pay for it. Or what if we did like nonpoint? This, this, I, I mean, I do not want to pick on any farmers, but what if folks were fined? Like a wastewater plant or a, a, not, a point pollution, if they pollute, they are fined. Can you imagine if, if the regulations come to the point and says, okay, if the water quality coming off your drain tile is above 10 parts, we're going to fine you? It, it, you know, there's the carrot stick. And my gosh, I don't want the stick. But I'm telling you, the stick is coming. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so now you mentioned earlier about your wife being a chiropractor. Um, that has to provide an interesting uh, perspective to what you do because uh, chiropractic health is a little different approach, a more holistic approach to health than, let's say, traditional medical doctors. And uh, I imagine your wife has interesting conversations with her clients uh, about 
their concerns on water and food quality and those kind of things. How has uh, how has that opened her her approach uh, to healing and also, you know, the clients that she worked with? How does that relate back to what you do on your farm and and how you consult with people? I mean, that has to be an interesting combination. Yeah, it has really opened my eyes from a completely different world because we've got a Missouri practice and I actually help out and do some of the scheduling with her every now and then. And get oh, I thought in. you were in there doing manipulations. I Well, that, I got one more week of training. She's going to allow oh, me okay. to do that. <laughs> <laughs> she, she doesn't let me talk to many people. <laughs> it, it is, it has completely opened up my eyes. Number one, for how sick people actually are, how people are sick walking around. And I think it's a combination of very, very poor diets and and not just diet choices by them themselves, but it's the ability to even understand good food from bad food and 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 the type of food that we are raising as a as a group. And it's also, I think, also the heavy toxic load in our environments. You know, um, we we are, you know, since the 1950s, we are a very toxic laden environment. And and so when I see how I see the changes she can make in people by changing their diets. And she uses, like I said, what's called nutrition response testing. She uses muscle testing to find the basic of what's wrong with the body. And then change of diets and supplemental, natural supplements, standard process up in Wisconsin. Some of these places she uses a lot of to, to, to get their path on the health. But, you know, I think she completely came into my world and saw, okay, what's going on? And then I became into her world, you know, and I joke, I'm not even you able to use the word glyphosate on my, in my household. She's, I'm not even roundup. It's not even a term we can use, but at the same time, when, when I bring my world into her, I said, listen, we've got such a gradient of, of what we have to come down. We can't come in the producers and say, we got to cut everything out at one time, or we got to stop and completely change the way we're doing things. So it's, it's definitely made a good balance on her to see what is actually out there in the real world. And, and for me to see her world and how sick people are and how much help they need Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's uh fascinating to to see that connection and you made the comment there teaching people what good food is and what bad food is um why do we even have bad food well that's a good question that pre pre we there wasn't such a thing in the past it was food (laughs) and 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 that's what we have to think is like what is good food and what's bad food, you know, and, and how much food are actually farmers taking part in actually raising right now. You know, I, I wrote a little blog one time for UA on the fact that most farmers buy their food from the same place people in Los Angeles or New York City or anybody else does. You know, how much food is actually raised compared to what it was in the in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And I'm not advocating going back to the the horse and carriage and technology of of back then, but the fact is we have gotten so disconnected with our food supply as producers that it's, I think it's became dangerous. And again, I don't, it sounds like I'm picking on individual producers, but I'm not. I think it's just been a mindset as much as anything of how we've gotten so specialized in what we raise and how we do it that we've, we've actually disconnected ourselves from the food supply. And not to to pick on us producers too, but when you think about it, if we can hit those two goals of a cover crop and reduce nitrogen rates or fertilizer rates in general at the time of planting or after, uh, that's good for us on our pocketbooks. Mm-hmm. That's good for us in yield. And that's good for us in uh, soil quality for mm-hmm. future generations. So mm-hmm. all of these things are complementary. So they should be goals of yours anyway. So. Yes. You know, anything, I think a great, okay, so see, you, you'll be an authority on this. Um, everybody's talking about measuring the re, the impacts of regenerative ag and, and the, everything is looking at carbon, right? What is the carbon in the soil? Are we changing carbon in the soil? And there's been a hundreds, thousands of studies trying to isolate where carbon is and there's different pools and different locations and different forms of carbon and stability. It, it's, <laughs> nobody can figure it out. Right. I mean, it's not from a lack of research dollars being thrown at it. Right. Nobody can figure it out, but guess what? We can easily, easily measure that indirectly related that will, um, what do I want to say will be an indicator of soil quality other than just carbon. 
we can measure water quality. <laughs> we yeah. can measure nutrient density of the crops that we're doing. We can measure air quality. Uh, we can measure habitat as far as insect quality and diversity, uh, mammals, birds, you know, other living creatures there. Uh, all of these things can be results oriented that we can do today without trying to figure out things. What if we used, what do you see if we could use water quality measurements as a report card on the quality of work we're doing as farmers in order to get incentive payments versus carbon credits? It's such a better driver. And, and, you know, we know carbon drives the system, but carbon is like anything else. It's going to be cyclical. You know, if we're in carbon, hopefully we want an upward trend on our, on our operations, but it is a cyclical type thing. But thing, you know, when our overall job in the soil health world and as producers is to build an aggregate, you know, we want to build an aggregate. And when we do that, everything comes together. So like you said, if we measure water quality, and quantity, you know, what's running off our place, what type is running off our place. Then, like you said, the nutrient-dense food, there's so much of an ecological aspect that I've seen. When I started down the road of soil health, it's almost, I kept saying, this is the answer. This is like the golden egg. This is like the basic. If I solve these issues, everything else comes together. And I truly do that. I see that. And, and like you said, I think we measure the wrong things to get that. It should be the quality of food coming off our place the quality of the uh, community dynamics and, and uh, animal dynamics that's on my place. What's the water quality coming off? Have spring started showing up again as, as, the, as the water cycle? You know, we get a lot of talk on climate change and global warming and a lot of other political terms that are thrown out there. But the, the way we have messed up the water cycle, both, you know, macro and micro, you see it every day. You know, we had a six inch rain the other day in about four hours, six inches. You know, we have so messed up the water cycle. So you're right. We are measuring the wrong things. And the neat part is, is those are simple measurements that can be made that are highly accurate, that give us immediate feedback for our, what we've done. So, you're you're going to go down a road we can't come back here real quick. Yeah, I know. So uh, I think that's something that uh, that needs to be explored. You know, mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, if people want to have environmental quality as part of their portfolio to you know uh, reward and compensate for, uh, I think that's something that, that can be. Yes. Okay. You mentioned Jim Garrish, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, when he was in Missouri, and you know he couldn't even handle Missouri. He had to go to Idaho. So, I mean, <laughs> he got uh, bored. yeah, he got bored there. So he's got, he's got better mountains, even though the Ozarks are nice, you know, the mountains he's at now out in Idaho are pretty amazing. Um, that's pretty neat that you were, you were trained by the, the, uh, kick the hay habit. So I have to ask you, are you feeding hay your contract? Uh, you're a contract grazer. So the answer should be no to this. Absolutely not. We, I tell you what, Perfect. we, we, we quit hay, I think we sold all of our hay equipment in, oh my gosh, 93, 94. And, you know, when we, we needed hay, we'd buy hay in. But Jim Garrish was the pioneer of, of and, and Ron Morrow happened to be another, another gentleman, Dr. Ron Morrow. You know, those guys were pioneers because Jim had just brought that back from New Zealand and, and the technology wasn't there, but I have to give kudos to Missouri NRCS and Missouri Soil and Water by having cost share way before anybody else. Because I have to say, looking back, you know, I've got mixed feelings about government programs. Without the cost share, I wouldn't have started it. Knowing what I know now, I would, I would definitely would. But, you know, so, so to come full circle with that, yeah, the, the getting out of the hay, you know, and, and when you travel the rest of the country, holy cow. You know, the overstocked of people, how much hay is being fed, the out of whack economics and agriculture and livestock agriculture, especially it, it opens your eyes when you travel around. So the best way to adopt no-till is to sell your tillage equipment. And the best way to uh, adopt a, a no hay strategy to sell your hay equipment is what you Absolutely. And I have never not been able to find hay. Everybody, I always find that everybody plans for that one bad year 69 years ago that my dad had on that one bad winter where we couldn't find hay. So we, from there on out, that's what our whole management plan is, but we've always been able to find hay. Yeah. 
So Jim Carrey, you know, wrote the book, Kick the Hay Habit, and uh, he's been an advocate for that for a long time. Um, but no, that's a, a pretty neat story that you've got there. And yeah, it was learned, learned from Jim, and then then you went on to learn from a holistic management. So yes, would, uh, you know that has Alan Savory's uh, fingerprints on it, and, and then you got connected up with Alan Williams. So you, you've gotten like the the three uh, godfathers of uh, intensive rotational management, or you know managed grazing, or holistic management, uh, um, adaptive management. You picked the term. It's keep the animals together and move them more often. It is. And, and the management becomes in your court and not their court. And, you know, it's funny because they all have brought pieces of the puzzle. You know, I mean, from understanding ag, we talked about adaptive grazing, you know, and, and I and I do understand that because, you know, when, when we came home from uh, holistic management, it was all high density. So that's all we did. You know, is everything wanted to be high density and. And it is neat once you see the aspects of a truly adaptive type system. Nature is so different. You know, nature never does anything at the same time. And I always got into that habit when we grazed stalker cattle. They'd come off the truck at the same time of year. They would come out of the corral into the same paddock. They would make our system. At the end of the, we got ready to ship them out. They were in that same paddock and they went out. And it was just a system. And we as humans, you know, Dr. Williams talks about this all the time. We are so system oriented. And it's almost like we need to wake up each morning and go, ah, I think I'm going to do this. Or I think I'm going to do this. And I think you'll be right more at times than if you try to create a system. Right, right. We love recipes. So we do, we do. No, that's a, that's a great point. And, you know, cows are, and cattle are great at making beef, but they're just terrible at managing pasture. They are. And, and I tell you what, honey, I just returned from uh, South Dakota, did some work on the Lakota Sioux up there. And I got to drive all the way through the sand hills and up there. And, and, you know, I, I try not to be dramatic or I try not to be overly concerned and, like to be optimistic, but boy, when you see that that fragile part of the country or those or those uh, Nebraskan sandhills, some of those things are right to me, in my opinion, on the edge of collapse. It is amazing what we have done to degrade some of the most productive lands in the world, probably from a grazing standpoint, and uh, it is just poor management of of livestock. And you know, and I really feel that the hundredth is now the ninetieth in rain. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. and it, it's not going to be too long until it's the 80th it, it, you know, yes. and what, what we've been experiencing uh you know today is uh it, it's pretty dry through the corn belt so yes. uh, yeah. it, it's it's irregular and, and there is a water cycle to it and and there's just no reason to stimulate a local water cycle we've been blessed in this neighborhood by the macro you know mm -hmm. uh, from the gulf but uh that can only last so long. So, you know, as you get to the West, they're, they're more dependent on the, on the local vegetation and, and those kind of things. Yes. Um, but no, that, that's, uh, that's fascinating. And I, I, I think talk about now and people that are integrating livestock or, or doing grazing, when you're doing that rotational management, adaptive grazing, it's impact on the water cycle. I, you know, I, I think that living root. I mean, uh, water quality is what I should okay, say. Okay, yeah. The water cycle. Yeah. Water you know, it's once again, like we talked about the two principles of a, a living root in the soil and, and armor on the soil. You know, I, I think, it, you know, we have the natural um, uh, filtering effect of, of soil, of nature and everything else. And that truly is when we just... The, the biggest thing we don't use that give and take of the earth of, of you know, we're, we're, we're going deeper and deeper in our aquifers, you know, not only is it a quality, it's a quantity issue too. But anytime you can, you can use the natural filtration of, of the ground, that's, that's how you get it. And that's even, you know, what it, even it goes into rivers or goes into our, our groundwater, that natural filtration of that, but that does not work without biology. That does not work without a living root in the soil our living plant growing. It does not work like it's, and, and I think, you know, you had mentioned, I think we're truly seeing how we've affected our overall water. You know, we get these deluges of rains, you know, and, and I, I think the averages in Missouri are about the same, but the way it comes is just overwhelming. So just to add in what you said on that, it's just crazy how we're getting our rainfall now. 
Right. And I remember, you know, Jerry Hatfield's documented that and he talks a lot about that. Yeah. It's not the total it's and Ellen Taylor has too. you know, it's not the total it's the events, um, which is unfortunately causing, um, you know, less of it to go on the ground to grow the crop because it just cannot get into the ground because of, of the way things are. I've got pictures in the boot hill down here. So they get 40 to 50 inches of rain and they irrigate another 30, you know, cheap water, water tables, 10, 12 foot, you know, high. I've got pictures where the corn will be twisting and, and 10 feet over water will be standing. You know, I mean, they have, they have disrupted the water cycle. And, and that's just one example. You know, we were out in California in March, I guess, you know, where they were getting all the floods. I mean, this is a water standing everywhere. And, and the fact is the water, you know, when they get these big rainfalls, it just runs off, you know, they can't keep it. So we are in that drought flood cycle. As, as we joke in Missouri and you in Illinois, we're two weeks from a drought, Every, you know, and that flout, that dr drought flood cycle is just right next to each other. And because we've just broken the system. Yeah. Yeah. We're a little more fortunate. We got an extra glacier that you didn't. So uh, <laughs> we, we've got a little longer. But I know in southeast Kansas, it's a five-day thing. And as you come into Missouri, it's 10. Up here, we're, we're closer to 20. So, uh, you know, uh, you had those mountains in a way the glacier didn't come. So anyway, but we, we, got the, we got the good dirt that came down from Wisconsin. So that's what makes it work here. So. But you're still in Illinois. Don't forget uh, that. I know, got that. I know. I know. <laughs> you know, it does, it does amaze me how much work Missouri, Iowa, Indiana, and, and all in Kentucky, everyone around us has done in soil quality and soil health initiatives. And then that's... And there's us so um <laughs> so earlier before we got on the uh recording here you're talking a little bit about uh virtual fencing um uh, interest in that and what's your what's your latest thoughts on that and how that can uh, be a tool potentially for for producers uh to consider when they're integrating the i say fifth principle you'll say sixth principle <laughs> i think you know i think the amount of technology we have coming out now in all of this regenerative world opens up so many minds to, you know, so many things we can do. And from my standpoint, when I'm not home, when I have a smaller farm, I can't afford some outside labor. And, and boy, some of those tools, I think, become wonderful for me. Now, should they take the, the place of, a, of management of eyes on the ground, any chance I get or make sure I'm actually managing those livestock? But man, you know, when I can look at different areas of my place, it's almost impossible to get a poly wire in or different places that I want to move cows every two days or sheep every two days that I just can't labor wise make it done. I really think there's places for these. And, uh, you know, from, from my personal standpoint, the economics were still kind of too close. And uh, but I think the way that technology is coming on a virtual fence or or soil testing technology or, or planners that are getting instantaneous soil samplings, you know, I, there is so much, you know, and, and, and people we're working with, I think there's so much technology that's getting ready to come off the shelf to make this world of regenerative agriculture and intensive management so much easier and so much better, as long as the education component comes in with it. And I know Gabe probably beats that in. And when he talks with you a little bit, we have to have the overall education to be able to understand why we're using the stuff. From my standpoint, I think this technology has really got its place. So talk to us a little bit about uh, impacts you've been able to make um, in your time here with other growers and, and just some stories maybe of wins that, that kind of stick out in, in your mind, especially, you know, overall wins, but especially because water is such a, um, a key thing uh, of, of what you're about and your experience some some wins in the water realm too i tell you what the, the water realm was really big getting involved in national rural water association and for them to actually now get a uh, an audience of like listen this is important i'm always telling the guys from ua i said let's don't talk about clean water let's talk about clean drinking water because there's there's a difference and and, and when you talk about clean water it's also kind of like, well, we want to get kids off drugs. It's something that everybody can agree on. And if you don't agree to clean drinking water, then then you got to look at, okay, you know, it, it, it just creates that aha factor of like, wow, we really need to do it. And I think it, it goes across party lines. And so that was something I think 
working with Rural Water and with UA because Gabe and company has really allowed me to go down in that realm with some of the primacy agencies, EPA, and really kind of create things because they see us now as a solution to their problems. When you talk to regulators, even EPA from the federal standpoint, state regulators, you know, we've got a, a big project with Missouri DNR right now on education and soil health. And so these folks, once they get trained, they know this is the solution to their problems. They've always been taught it's engineered solutions. Like in Decatur, Illinois, we're going to dredge a lake and spend $90 million and spend another $60 million on a water plant. They've been taught that it's engineered solutions. Not only that, we're starting to see it go into realm of FEMA, Corps of Engineers. We can't keep building bigger levees, right? They see it, they call them nature-based solutions now is the big fancy word. And I mean, housing, urban development, FEMA, Corps of Engineers, uh, the primacy agencies like EPA and DNRs and Illinois, they see us as a solution, regenerative ag and these as a solution. And that, that's been a huge win to say, look at us. We do truly have a, solutions to a lot of problems. Personally, on this, being able to consult and go all over the United States, it has been eye-opening on, number one, how many people do want to change to see every place you go to may have a different why. You know, some we, we're tired of losing money or some we're tired of being sick and we're tired of operating this way. And I've seen older producers, when I say older than their late 70s, that have a complete new rekindled purpose by doing the soil health thing. It's like, man, we're actually farmers again. We're doing things again. And so all the different folks, I mean, I've had people I've consulted with that are doing it from a somewhat prepping standpoint. They wanna be able to survive on their own. And, and we're working with a lot of Indian reservations on uh, indigenous communities on, hey, we wanna get back to what we think are the old ways. And so the amount of different whys people are doing this it just blows me away. And, and and it's a movement. Maybe it's because I'm in the middle of it, but it's a movement like I've never seen happen on anything else. You, you, you've been in agriculture long enough. We've seen it. Oh, well, here's the next big thing. And oh, here's going to be the thing that saves the world. I'm kind of one of those weird guys that think that what we're doing, what you're doing with these podcasts, what I'm doing with water quality, consulting, UA, Soil Health Academy this is going to change the world. This is what we have to do to change the entire world and getting down the road of taking care of this little ball that we live on. So what does that change look like 10 years from now? What's it going to look like? I think so much of it depends on whether the change is allowed to happen. You know, I mean, the movement is huge. The movement is, but there are a lot of uh, other players that would probably rather us not change i mean you know i mean let's let's just say it like it is until the farm bill changes we won't see major changes until the consumer is made to be able to drive this train more until we demand clean drinking water we demand nutrient dense food and we demand that part of raising food is an ecological standpoint as well i i Sometimes I get very optimistic when, when I'm out, but you get very pessimistic because I think the movement needs to come much quicker, but there are a lot of groups that don't want it to happen. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I agree with that. So now what do you personally want it to look like in 10 years from now? Your impact, your impact on agriculture, what do you want it to be 10 years from now? I always say if I was a king for today, for a day, you know, I, want, I would want it, to be as crazy as it sounds, five, six, whichever we agree on, those six principles when it comes to agriculture. I think every single decision needs to be made on the farm standpoint of that. From a consumer standpoint, I think decisions they need to be made needs would, would say, hey, we're gonna buy food choices based off quality, nutrient-dense stuff like that. I, I, I wanna see a landscape that is, you know, honestly, you could even go back to maybe the sweet spots of the 40s and 50s and see how farms were set up then with the diversity of a farm itself. 
we had a pretty good model going on right there with a few tweaks that we could do based off technology and know-how and knowledge we have of soils and, and biology and things that way. But I would like to see these diverse farms. I would like to see so many people actually intimately involved in agriculture. I would like to see farmers actually raising food and, and being more of a, you know, backyard gardens, backyard chickens and, and, things of that nature. I do really think we, we've got the ability when we were out at Chico and we were in all those almond groves and, and vineyards and stuff, California alone could feed this entire world. Or, I'm sorry, the entire United States without even trying. I mean, the amount of ability to graze sheep under vineyards or have cover crops here or having growing stuff here, vegetables over here. We're so, uh, non-diversified now that I think we we've taken away what the ability we have so I'm, I'm kind of talking in circles a little bit right there but I but I see the movement that you're doing and I'm movement in 10 years to solve so many of these world's problems I'm not sure I know quite how to get there <laughs> if I if I was king for a day I would definitely I would definitely have less government and probably more capitalistic ways of getting there based off what the consumer demands and wants that answer that question and I kind of go around in circles. A little well, there's, there's no right answer to it. We'll, <laughs> we'll replay this 10 years from now and see what happens. So exactly. no, I, uh, um, no, I appreciate your, your thoughts and, and insights on that and, and your efforts and, and what you're trying to do and accomplish. So um, anything else that uh, we should have uh, visited about today while we had our time together, uh, other, other thoughts and, and ideas bouncing around inside of your head and your team's head. You know, I, I, I think the team, both mine and team, I've never thought this growth would have been like it is. And I'm not saying this from a bragging standpoint or economic standpoint, but I think I was one of three consultants a year ago, and now there's like 14. I mean, it is unbelievable how this movement has gone. And it's not been from a, it's been from these are solutions to a lot of different problems. And the, and the amount of people that are reaching out, like I said, from my wife's standpoint, I joke when I go to her conferences, she's got people that are interested in soil health. And I go to my, she goes to my conferences and they're doctors and people that are, they're interested, you know, in, in a new way of doing things. So it, it, the education component, we have got to continue to figure out how to get edge and, and things like this are as, as important as anything. We have, I feel like we have to do things to make a quicker change because I always feel like I, I get all excited after getting a talk off a talk like this and I'm all pumped up. And then I drive across Iowa and I'm like, Holy cow, I've driven all day and not seen a cover crop one, you know? So maybe I think we, I think we need a bigger effort. And, but I will have to say from a little bit of experience of doing it right now, there's more people lobbying on this farm bill than there's ever been. There's more people trying to make an impact on this farm bill than there's ever been, you know, individuals like Dave Brandt, like Gabe Brown, you know, some of the movies that came out, the movies that are going to come out into the future, I think that's going to have a big impact. I think people are more concerned, more involved, but we need to keep this ball going and keep it going faster and faster and do more and more quicker. I agree with you a hundred percent. And uh, hopefully the farm bill won't be just up, oh, hit the copy button and uh, renew it again for another five to seven years. Hopefully we can make another, uh, we can make some progress that rewards farmers for doing the right thing instead of, you know, uh, not rewarding, uh, yes. in, 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 in inadvertently penalizing for, for doing some things. So fingers crossed. There you go. Well, Eric, I really appreciate your time today and, uh, thank you for all your efforts and what you're doing there and thinking about water, not just as in a runoff that goes to affect somebody in the Gulf or, or downstream from them, wherever you might be. But, uh, it, it's think of it as drinking water, you know? Yes. Would you want to drink the water that's leaving your field? Yes. And, and that's the uh, question asked. Yes. If you, if you can say yes to that, then you're doing the right things. Or if it's muddy and, and loaded, you, you need your head examined if you want to drink that stuff. But uh, anyway, it, oh, we, need to, we need to be thinking about others, not just ourselves. And uh, everything we can do to keep um, those nutrients and the soil in place on our own land is better for us. But it's also better for our neighbors and communities and everybody else that, that depends on us. So uh, really appreciate uh, 
your time today and uh eric uh we'll we'll stay in touch and and keep fighting this fight together and and help people to do just do one thing right just just do one thing that's all it takes and and then once you get that do one thing the next year and absolutely because we just don't have the time to wait five years before you do something yes Monty, I appreciate you having me on here. And if anybody wants to reach out, you know, we'll, we'll get contact and stuff. But I, I love talking about this stuff and making an impact. And, and thank you so much for inviting me. Well, very good, Eric. You have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope today's conversation got you thinking of everything from livestock to water. As Eric and Monty discussed not only concerns, but the practical solutions to those concerns when it comes to soil health, livestock, and water. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.